Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in Walter's music. Thank you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. If any of you listening would like to know more about community radio, WPVM-FM.org is a good place to start. You can always reach me by email, nave at jamesnave.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E, and my website is jamesnave.com if you'd like to know more about what I'm up to, especially my imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session, which I host every Saturday with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We gather with writers, and we write for an hour. It's good fun. Doors always open. Anybody can come, and people do come from all over the world, so we're, we're glad to have everybody and that includes you, imaginativestorm.com, if you'd like to know more about that. Today, my guest is Connor Kennedy. I interviewed Connor a couple of years ago and archived this interview and have aired it a couple of times in the past and think it's just so thoughtful it's worth airing again. Sadly, Connor left this world uh, about two years ago because of cancer. So many people suffer that. I was very sad to hear that news and also relieved that I had made this interview as well. Connor was born in Dublin. He lived there all his life and left this world in Dublin. He was one of Europe's most prominent advertising executives. He owned his own agency and made commercial work for all kinds of clients, the big ones and the small ones. Connor, though, was more than that. He was a renaissance man. He loved to read. He loved to think. He loved to talk. He loved to tell stories. In this interview, I open by asking Connor why he thinks reading is so important to him. I'm the commercial black sheep of the family. Everyone else in my family is either a poet or a journalist or an antiquary or a novelist or a short story writer. I never got the chance to go to college, and so books have been my education since as long as I can remember. And every time I think I'm getting somewhere, I realize I haven't got to the Russians yet, I haven't got to any Asian translation yet. And instead of this being intimidating, it's kind of a comfort. It means no matter how far I get, there's an awful lot further to go. So when you talk about educating yourself, when did you know you wanted to become an educated, functioning human being walking this earth? You can't get out of the way of books in my family. And we were all we were read to as children. We were bought books for every important milestone. The library at home was excellent. And books become both a, it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because obviously there are worlds that you can inhabit that are completely other than I could ever possibly experience. Like I could go and live in Cervantes for a while, I could go and whaling with Mr. Melville. And like I say, it's a never-ending journey. So when you think of education, you said you didn't have a chance to go to college. Mm. A lot of people out there 
especially here in the States now because education is so expensive, they don't have a chance to go to college. And yet getting an education by way of your own resources can be just as valuable. How has that influenced you? And, and when you've been around people who are highly educated, how are you able to interact with them and how are you able to influence them? Do you bring a wisdom to the table that they may have overlooked because they've been so categorized by their education? That's a very flattering question. <clears throat> yeah, I'd hope that I bring something to the table which is the distilled experience of all of the worlds that I've been lucky enough to live in. But to come back to your question about here in America where education is intimidatingly expensive, you can walk into any library and all the education that you could ever require is there on the shelves and it's free. And the internet has assembled the greatest library in history with the broadest democratic access to it. And I know we're all we're, we're terrified of Amazon these days, but the idea of no book ever being out of print ever again is just a fabulous thing. I'll give you one small idea of what I mean. My mother, who left us earlier on this year, is a um, distinguished novelist, and she has written a couple of wonderful collections of short stories that are linked thematically. Um, because she was... Critically respected, I think, is the term for people who don't sell a whole lot of books. Irish writers typically went out of print quite early. Now I was looking for a copy of a book of hers and five minutes messing on a keyboard and it's on the way. And only then do I discover that this has come from a little second-hand bookshop in Western Australia. And the chances of my ever encountering that bookshop were somewhere between slim and something very impolite. And there it is in the post, 10 days later. What did it feel like when you received it? Magic. Magic. The purest of magic. This notion of... You know, because books, particularly um, books of a more literary nature, they don't go in the bin. They get passed around. They tend to surface in second-hand bookshops. But growing up, I had to get used to the idea that most of what my parents wrote wasn't going to be commercially available. If I walked into a wonderful bookshop in Dublin, I wasn't going to find a new copy of anything of theirs. Now, I'm 60 years old, and I can find anything they wrote in 10 minutes. When you think about all of the books you've read over your lifetime, do can you think of one that really stands out, that really influences the way you think and interact with the world today? Hmm, that's a really hard one. Okay, there is this tiny book written by a Siberian called Andrei Makin, and he is a wonderful sequence of glorious coincidences. I presume he now writes in French because of trouble in Russia early in the last century, and he is translated, he thinks in Russian, he writes in French, and then he's translated into English by a genius. This book is called A Life's Music. You could read it in a long lunchtime and it will then grow into your mind for the next decade. Yeah. Why this book? What's in that book that's so meaningful and maybe you could share a bit of that with us? It's a beautiful little story about trying to find your way home from the war when Russia had been transformed by... First the revolution, then the terror, then the catastrophe of the Second World War. 
and how music is a kind of a class jumping thing and how listening to somebody play a piano in a room beyond a room that you're not necessarily going to be allowed into is just that little seed you mentioned that goes into that sound behind the door behind the door of somebody who you think you know because you think you get the mood of what they're playing but that piece of music goes straight into your mind and stays there and how has that little book influenced the way you interact in your your daily life on the job or in in social settings I refer to it often um, and I give it to people repeatedly as a present because as I say it is this tiny little book that just expands by some magical quality into and I defy anyone to read it and not think about it for months afterwards. I aspire to write a fraction as well as he does. The cadence, the rhythm, the music of the sentences is beautiful. The ability to survive translation from two very refined languages into another comparatively youthful language, which is English compared to French or Russian, um, is spellbinding. A lot of people think of the Irish people as great storytellers. You grew up in Ireland. Could you give us a sense of, of your background and what your growing up was like? Writers' children are unusual in that um, you grow up to find successive iterations of yourself in your parents' work, and sometimes that's a bit shocking. But thankfully, in Ireland, um, writers aren't this strange, esoteric class apart. They are very real and approachable and near. And the notion that you can sit down with a pencil and paper and create magic is not regarded as some intimidatingly demanding rite of passage that you might come across in your life. It is, it, it, it's, perhaps it's overdone in the sense that we always tell ourselves that we all have a book in us. And unfortunately, that's not true, because a lot of, a lot of the books that get committed perhaps should not have been. And the other thing that comes along with the internet is a great deal of self-published nonsense. But in Ireland, we, we genuinely we look up to fine writers and fine storytelling in a way that isn't the tiniest bit elitist. I genuinely believe it is very widely shared. And it comes perhaps from the fact that we are, we are still closer to the land than most urban peoples. And as children, we all have the experience of being in farmhouses in the West where we get sent to learn Irish or sent for a month's holidays in the summer, of sitting around a kitchen table listening to people tell stories. And they can be ghost stories and they can be gossip, and they can, but they are rich and deep and they get filed away in different parts of your head and you can summon them for different tasks that you may be asked but um, the funny thing to come back to what I was saying about writers families we found the idea of people's houses that didn't have books in them absolutely inconceivable we found the idea of people who would sit around the kitchen table having dinner watching a television to be something close to heresy and successive friends of ours 
would turn up at the kitchen table and be astonished, not just that they were expected to have something to say, but that as even as children and teenagers, that they were listened to and they were expected to take part in this conversation that would rage pretty widely. So it wasn't all about art, literature and politics. It might be about the weather or the political environment or the price of tea in China, but I mean, you were expected to pitch in. When you were involved, in, when you were involved in a conversation like the ones you were involved in around your dinner table with your family and your mm. friends, the art of conversation mm. does that come into play? And do you learn that as a child in Ireland, and then carry it forward as an adult? And if there's if there are some tips to having conversation as art, what perhaps are they? I think it comes back to what I was saying, is that, that we don't put, certainly the written and the oral arts, so to speak, on a pedestal. It's very close to us. It's very, um, <clears throat> as I say, you grow up listening to stories, you grow up surrounded by books, you grow up with the consciousness that stories are important and that they help us explain more difficult concepts. And it is also true that the more you read, the more articulate you get. And sometimes it takes a while to actually get out the dictionary and look up the word. You've inferred what it means by context, and sometimes that lodges in your head, and sometimes it doesn't. But I, I do believe that that's true, that, that, that the, the more you read, the more fluent you get, both in speech and in terms of how you express yourself, whether that is in a piece of writing or a piece of storytelling or a piece of music that you might be trying to compose. Could you give us a sense of the atmosphere of the neighborhood you grew up in? What did it look like? How was it back in, in the 50s and the 60s when you were a young lad growing up? I was very lucky. Um, most of my peers were growing up in the new three-bedroom semi-detached houses with a small front garden and a slightly bigger back garden. And they were all very cookie-cutter. And there was district after district of these taking shape in the suburbs. My parents loved the old red brick, double-fronted steps up to the front door, big, raggedy, drafty, cold houses, but they had beautiful proportions. And I was lucky enough to grow up in one of those, looking at a massive beech tree at the bottom of the front garden, between the garden and the road that we lived on, a back garden with pear trees, with apple trees, with roses, with almost walks. That sounds very grand. It wasn't all that big. But it had that feeling as a child that you could wander around in the back garden. And so when I was growing up, the suburb was called Rathgar, and it's a walk from the city centre of Dublin. And the interesting thing about Dublin is that Dublin is a small city. There's only really a million and a half of us, but it is a very compact capital city. And so the old inner suburbs that the Brits left behind are very elegant. The proportions of the houses are very correct. There wasn't much traffic when I was growing up. And there were extraordinary things, like my father, who worked for the Inland Revenue and used to conduct these extraordinary extended conversations with dignified country solicitors over Lord somebody or other's extant estate. And at a certain point in that conversation, my father was entitled to settle on behalf of the state. And these 
estates were notoriously complex to sort out. But he came home for his lunch every day, from the middle of town to my home, and then he went back to his office. That's practically inconceivable now in any urban setting I know. When you were a child, how did you play, and what were your mates like? Well, on this avenue that I was just describing, there was us, and we were the poor Kennedys, and then in an enormous house at the other end of the road, there was the rich Kennedys. And because, as I mentioned, everybody had huge back gardens and fruit trees were not at all unusual, there was a lot of orchard, orchard pilfering, and kids were turned loose on bicycles. There was no traffic to speak of, to be afraid of. And you were constantly in and out of every house on that avenue, and we used to be very conscious of the fact that this house was country people, this house is rich people, this house is, frankly, odd people like us. And yet it all mixed up and recombined all the time. And you are still in Dublin. You stay there for mm. your work. I also know you spend a lot of time in Spain, and you travel all over the world. How does it feel to stay? How does it feel to still be in Dublin as a native Dubliner? Let me try and weave that into a little story. Uh, when my daughter, who was brought up in Barcelona, was with me once um, for Christmas in Dublin, and we were out for a walk in town on Christmas Eve. And I couldn't quite figure out what she was looking at all the time. And then eventually when we got home a couple of hours later, her mother was asking her, well, how is that? He said hello to everybody, and everybody knew him. And that's an interesting thing about the way Dublin works. It's When I said it's a small capital city, sooner or later you realise that you can't walk down any street in Dublin without nodding to somebody or metaphorically raising your hat to somebody because that's the nature of the place. And because it's small and it's compact, um, it doesn't swallow people in the way that London does, which makes it a very impromptu city. And we are spectacularly good at going bankrupt. And the first time that happened, um, a lot of the people that I grew up with left for New York or Sydney or... Vancouver or North Carolina, where some of them did very well and a lot of them didn't come back. But I was, this sounds like I'm polishing my halo, but I'm not. I was very conscious of the fact at the time that, relatively speaking, I was quite well paid, that I loved this city and that I wanted to do some small thing about getting us out of the mess that we got ourselves into this time. And I passionately believed that what was necessary also for the reform of the rather conservative society that we had then, was more people like me who regarded it as a privilege to live in Dublin. And any time, for instance, business might take me to South America or to Australia to shoot something or to pursue some aspect of a job that we were doing, Dublin is a, is a nice city to come back to. You're constantly aware of the fact that compared to other great metropolitan areas, it has fantastic trees. Um, it spreads out in a small crescent around a very deep bay, which is bounded more or less by, we call them the Dublin Mountains. They're not really mountains, they're hills. And there's another hill just to the north called Hoth. And in the old days, I used to be coming back into it on ships. 
These days it's mostly on planes, but it's always a pleasure to come back to Dublin from anywhere. You're here now yeah. in Western North Carolina. You're visiting Anne-Marie McConnell. She's been on twice five miles before. Anne-Marie's from Dublin. That's where you know Anne-Marie. I visited her there. She has a little cottage in a place called Dalkey, which is mm-hmm. just outside of Dublin. Mm-hmm. Nice little spot, very tiny cottage that butts up against the hills and you can stroll around. So you, this is this is your first visit to Western North Carolina. What is your impression of it, and what kind of adventures have you had while you've been here? Firstly, you're very lucky people. You live in a spectacularly beautiful part of the world. Um, I've been hearing about the fall and reading about it since I was a child. It is a hallucinogenically intense experience, and I feel an enormous privilege to have been here for it. It's winter now in Ireland. And up until a couple of days ago, I was walking around here in a T-shirt and being blown away by the trees and by the... The sense of the mountains is lovely. Asheville is a lovely small place. Um, I was delighted to find a really good bookshop called Malaprops and thought that was, okay. that's one find for the day. And then Anne-Marie took me around the corner to um, a champagne bar with the bookshop attached. I thought, hang on, the books have to be for decoration. No, it's a really, really good bookshop. It just happens to have a really nice champagne bar. And you can drop an Irish person into a bookshop with a champagne bar and expect them to thrive, really. What else about this area you've enjoyed? Obviously, the Biltmore is simply overwhelming. And there is something, something fascinating for me in, you know, it takes you three, four hours to get a sense of the house and then eventually they funnel you down into the basement and there are some old black and whites of when the house was being built and then when it was finished. And when it was finished, it was a setting for a ghost story. It was the bleakest thing imaginable. It was surrounded by clear-cut. And frankly, it looked both ridiculous and a bit sinister. Now, walking around it, because of the vision of the people who laid out the estate around the house, There is something quite extraordinary about the man who spent ten fortunes on that house and had his initials incised into the roof in repeated pattern in gold leaf. Never lived to see what he saw in his mind. And the view from his balcony beside his bedroom is just, I could could stand there for days watching the light play in the forest and the way the various trees have been laid out and how different heights and densities and colours have been planned. And that was a film I wasn't expecting. What were some of the thoughts you had as you walked through the Biltmore house? Hubris on a colossal scale. Um, Wonderful little detail that tells you a lot about these things. Otis put in two elevators in 1895, and they still maintain exactly the same elevators that are working today. I mean, that's a little poem right there. I was... I was taken aback by how much of it hadn't even been finished by the time he died, which means that the absolutely extraordinary spaces that I walk around today only ever existed in his mind and in his ambition. And that's a... There's a kind of a ghost on your shoulder walking around there. But any view in any direction from the house is just amazing. And what has been accomplished 
in terms of, as far as I understand it, the residual estate is about 8,000 acres, and originally it was 170,000 acres. But it has been so planned and developed and sensitively managed since that you still see the immensity of the land that the family surrounded themselves with. And frankly, a family owning 175,000 acres of anything is not within the Irish experience. That would cover a fair amount of Ireland. That certainly would cover a fair piece of it. (laughs) So when you looked out over the mountains of western North Carolina and you saw that vast expanse Mm -hmm. and you compared it to the expanses of Ireland, like in Galway and Clifton, the sea, the roar of the sea at the end of the Sky Road in Clifton. Compare and contrast the two environments for us so people listening can get a sense of how maybe some of what we have here might overlap with what you have in Ireland. Well, I grew up on the, relatively speaking, the urban East Coast, and as I was mentioning earlier, Dublin is a proper developed capital city. As children, we all get brought up with um, a certain romanticization of the west of our country, which is entirely justified given that most of it is spectacularly beautiful. But everything in Ireland is half an hour away. What we call mountains um, would probably fit into the pocket of one of your proper mountains in this time, this part of the world. And every time I'm outside the cities in the States, I'm astonished all over again at this wonderfully flagrant use of space. Supermarkets have gardens, post offices have gardens. And it's a scale that we're quite unused to because an Irish town will tend to be quite tightly wrought, quite higgledy-piggledy. Villages are villages, they're tiny. Um, Our cities are small, as I say. And when you come in particular to the mountains in North Carolina, in particular at this time of year, is the sheer amount of space available to people to disappear into. Go for a walk in any direction and you're, if you so choose, you're not going to come across another person and that walk could take you hours and hours and hours. And the maintenance of some of the more beautiful aspects of it, I'm thinking of, I think it's called Jump Off Rock. And, you know, it is silly beautiful up there. And there was a small handful of people. And I would imagine that if I had gone off along any of the trails from the top, which I'll have to come back for, I wouldn't have come across a single other person. I might have met a snake. I might have met a cougar. I might have met more interesting things. I'm already utterly astonished at the wildlife in Anne-Marie's garden. And where I sit and have my breakfast, I'm likely to be looking at squirrels and ground squirrels and vultures and cardinals and deer and wild turkey sauntering around the back garden. And it's both wonderfully exotic and not something that we usually sense of America, is this fabulous wealth of environmental riches that are completely available to everyone. When I've been to Ireland, and I've been a few times to your wonderful country, and I've always said Ireland is one of those places you can go and discover things promised and actually discover them. Mm -hmm. So often what is promised in a place falls short. I've discovered in Ireland what's promised actually rises to the occasion. I've often felt 
like the leprechaun would just jump out from under the bush. <laughs> now, I've never seen a leprechaun. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they even exist, but I'd like to think so. Do you feel when you are here a sense of magic like I might feel when I'm in your country? Yes, but it's more magic in the sense of unexpected reverence for an extraordinary tree or the sheer amount of sky that seems to be out. I'm interested in the fact that you talked about when people come to Ireland, Ireland delivers. And by and large, I think that's true. And I'm going to try and tell you why. Um, my other life is in Barcelona. And like a lot of small European cities now, it is being overwhelmed by tourism. And it's a kind of a victim of its own desire. In Ireland, you come to see ancient monuments, castles, mountains, little pubs where people play astonishingly skillful music, apparently effortlessly. And that is all, it's all still there. Now, this is possibly because of economic incompetence and we haven't got around to wrecking an awful lot of what we have. But when you stand outside the oldest built structure in Europe, which is a thing, extraordinary thing called Newgrange in the Boyne Valley, you have no doubt that you are in the presence of my ancestors' spirits. That extends through to, for instance, um, I've just, you've just been through Halloween and all of the harlotry and pumpkins and stuff that it became in America. In Ireland, Halloween was, until recently, it was a very small family thing. And because the night of Halloween was called Samhain, which is the origin of the whole festival, children were given games to play and told stories to keep them cheerful because the darker side of Halloween was very close and very potent and very present. And on that night, we grew up believing the graves are open. And somebody who's standing beside you in a bar mightn't be who you think they are. Or somebody who you find walking towards you on your way home might dematerialize a moment after they passed you. And this to us doesn't seem fanciful or nonsense. It's a, it's a, it's a belief system that we grow up in because Catholicism is... 2,000 years old or whatever they want to give themselves at the moment. But most of that in Ireland is a palimpsest on top of all sorts of other very profound older beliefs. And we tend to take the whole thing in. So as I say, if you're standing outside Newgrange and you're looking at this miraculously aligned structure that 5,000 years ago the people managed to align with the rising sun on the winter solstice through an aperture about four inches high, is amazing. And the fact that it's still there and that we don't... Yes, we like it and yes, we're impressed by it, but we grow up with this as part of us. And to be honest, that's not what I come across every day in America. There are other and equal miracles of scale, of beauty, of this lyrical thing of the fall, which is, is just... As I said earlier, I think it's hallucinogenically intense and it is wonderful and it is a privilege. I mentioned earlier in the conversation about your work in the communication business, the language business. So you do read, you have a great literary background, and you've been able to translate that into 
work you've been doing all of your life. I'd like for you to tell us about your company and why you're so drawn to advertising and communication and, and getting the message out. And your company is Javelin, I believe. Is that right? Tell us about it. Javelin is 30 years old. It was founded by me and two partners. It's about 50 people. It's about 15 million turnover um, in your dollars. And we're the biggest of the small guys. Beneath us is kind of one-man, two-man bands. Above us is the international networks, the same as you have in America. And how I get into it is the oldest story in the world. Um, when I was living in Germany in my late teens, I used to write home to my parents, and I now realize they were wildly overheated, overwritten attempts at describing the world around me. And when I came back and I was working in a post office and wondering what on earth I was going to do next, my mother said to me one day, uh, you could be a copywriter. And I had no idea what a copywriter was. I used to think there was somebody very witty and very erudite who worked for Guinness, who was perhaps one of the Guinnesses, who got a bit of assistance on the commercial arts side of things. But it never occurred to me that there were these people called copywriters who composed the words that you read and listen to and watch in advertising. So I went and did some interviews and several of the people I talked to said they wouldn't hire me because clearly I wouldn't do what I was told. And then somebody said, well, we'll give you a try for three months and you won't get paid a lot, but we'll talk to you again in three months. And I was very lucky that um, several of the men around me, and they were old men, left to do their own thing or got hired away by other companies and suddenly there was me and one other writer and at the time a vast amount of work going through a very good very big old advertising agency in Ireland we were working with the IDA we were working with the state airline we were working with you know some of the most significant state and commercial entities in Ireland and therefore, as a wildly arrogant 21-year-old, I was working on stuff that, by rights, I shouldn't have got near for a long time afterwards. And I discovered that I enjoyed it. And there's an aspect of it that sadly has gone. Um, going back to the days of sainted Bill Burnback in New York, who was a copywriter who founded one of the great advertising agencies called Doyle Down Burnback, lightly mythologized in Mad Men. And he said, uh, you need to treat people with intelligence. Advertising's job is to get their attention and flatter their intelligence and operate on the assumption that people can understand complicated concepts provided they are elegantly and simply expressed. So an art director and a copywriter would sit down and produce, at the time typically it was a press ad, <clears throat> the art director was supposed to know how he would like it to look, or she, because there were a few she's by then, and the copywriter was supposed to be able to write the words so that the two, the visual and the words, came together into a third thing, which was an ad, which was a concept that communicated. Body copy, unfortunately, has gone the way of all good things. You're expected to be able to say it in one line in a picture because an English genius called John Haggerty said that press ads are nothing but their posters in newspapers. And that concept became so strong that it essentially, for the moment, annihilated the idea of headline, image, body copy, all beautifully, meticulously marshaled, and each thing made as good as you possibly could. But advertising has a great habit of rediscovering things that it should never have forgotten. And I 
hope that all of this will come around again. But in terms of my own company, as I said, we're the biggest of the small guys. Um, Ireland being a small place, we get the chance to work on some of Ireland's and the world's biggest brands. Because we speak English and because most of the American tech industry lives in the Grand Canal Harbour in the middle of Dublin, uh, we get opportunities that other people would find hard to come across. So these days, instead of pitching for a piece of business that is based in Ireland, I might be competing against agencies in Amsterdam and Munich and further afield for an account that is actually going, the work is going to appear in Singapore. And that's nice. A lot of people don't understand what copywriting is. Exactly. They think they have, they sit down and I'll write some copy for my brochure. Mm. Can you go a little deeper mm. into copywriting? The coding of copywriting how does how does it work and why does one piece of copy sing and another one another one fall off key copywriting tends to be devalued because ultimately it has to look effortless it has to look like that you knock this out in 10 minutes just like anyone could but the it is a very different conceptual ability from any of the arts from which it is descended by which I mean poetry and literature. Because in advertising you have to conceive an idea to order which has to communicate a certain specific thing. And that is required of no other art form, even most commercial art forms. You leave the sculptors and the sign writers and the street painters to do their own thing because it pleases them. We are there to take a particular commercial brief from a client and within the laws, and there are plenty of them, we have to find the words and the pictures that illuminate those words that instantly jump into your mind and stay there and communicate something highly specific in a way that you willingly engage with. And that's very much part of the skill. So you can be making people laugh, you can charm them, you can intrigue them, you can interest them, but your job is to draw them in to understand the commercial message behind it. What would be an example of something you hold up as a powerful piece of copywriting or an advertising campaign that was driven by powerful copywriting? There's a wonderful current one, as it happens, from Nike about stand for something, even if it means sacrificing everything. And it is just this very powerful photograph of, I believe he's a footballer, Colin, Colin Kaepernick. And I love that because it's reduced to the absolute minimum elements of advertising. It's one line of copy, one powerful picture, one logo, and you got it. And because Nike is Nike, um, the idea of standing against the current context, shall we say, resonated in a way that I'm very glad to hear about it. Very successful campaign. And it is lovely to see the most simple elements of our craft once again applied in a way that Bill Bernbach would have looked at and said, yeah, I like that. I wish I'd done that. So a lot of people in Asheville produce a lot of events. Yeah. You see posters all over the place. I usually see posters heavy with copy, heavy with explanation. And I don't read it. 
Mm. I'm, mm. and sometimes I will catch some long copy, and the long copy will pull me in. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a fellow named Neil French who was famous for yeah. long copy, yeah. and he wrote a book called "Forgive the Lobster," I think, and it was a, a, a memoir about long copy and how he would create copy and sell things that didn't even exist. Right? Yeah. For somebody who wants to learn more about copywriting or somebody out in Asheville area who would like to make a poster, what is, what's some advice as a seasoned copywriter, what would you say to somebody just beginning? And they, they can't do it, they, they can't afford to hire somebody else. Okay, uh, again, go back to the library. There is a wonderful thing called The One Show, which once a year produces the best of American advertising because Europeans like to dis-American advertising, except that those of us involved in the production of it know that the best of American advertising is head and shoulders, the best in the world. The One Show is an awards show once a year. Um, They produce a splendidly produced book once a year, and it is the best of what's going on. If it's a good library and it has a decent reference section, it will have copies of those books going back 20, 30 years. Um, you may have to dig a little harder for its British equivalent, which is called D and AD, and it is the equivalent of the one show. And the further back you go with the D and AD, the more you get back to the era of Neil French and his partner David Abbott, who people like me frankly revere, because he could make you interested in absolutely anything for the moment. And long copy was his thing. No answer, no accident. The French Gold Abbott were the same agency. Really, it is. There's a there's a trick. If you're interested in becoming involved in the creative side of advertising, creative directors are looking for people who have this ability I spoke about a minute ago to understand the basis of advertising concepts and to express them, whether that's visually or in copy terms. It doesn't matter. So here's the thing. What you do is you take the Nike campaign or you take the recent magnificent Mercedes stuff featuring Peter Fonda, which is a luxury that I wouldn't get to have in Ireland, or any long-running advertising campaign. Have a hard look at it and say, what would you do with it next? You don't need to produce a beautiful thing. You don't need to understand Photoshop. You don't need to set it because if you can go into a creative director with a stick man and the words... And it means that you've understood the basis of what Mercedes are at at the moment with Grow Up. You'll be welcomed with open arms. What is the relationship between the stick figure and the idea and the digital space we are living in now? None whatsoever. Concepts, if they're real concepts, have to be capable of being expressed with stick men and words on a page, nothing else. Whether that gets expressed ultimately as a poster up to colossal sizes in Times Square or as a television commercial or a press ad or a radio campaign, it doesn't matter. It comes down to what is that concept in its simplest form. Um, There was a time, which seems very difficult to imagine now, when advertising agencies couldn't possibly understand television. All they understood was radio a bit and newspapers a bit and mail order a bit. Now, advertising agencies got their heads around advertising, around television, I beg your pardon, pretty well. We're still trying to be pitilessly disciplined with ourselves in terms of now it has got to work on a three-inch screen because that's the universal 
access point. People are going to see it, on, and they may then see it on a television or come across it anywhere else. But we have to get our heads around the fact that the first place the people are likely to come across the beginning of a campaign is on a phone. And frankly, if it doesn't work on a phone, it doesn't work yet. And so there is a test that says that you, you have a concept for a campaign. And the original test used to be, OK, show me the poster. Because that means you have to be able to put it across in one image and preferably no more than five words. Now, those rules often honoured more in the breach than in reality, but nonetheless, that's the core discipline. If you, if you can show me in a picture in five words, you've got it. Now, we would be telling the juniors to, how does it work on the phone? But the wonderful thing about the juniors is because they've grown up with smartphones and they actually think like that. They think of this as the primary interface. Because the space they're working in is so small, do you think they have a better understanding of how to fit the small little stick figure into the three-inch space than someone would 20 years ago when they had the grand poster that they had to work with? No, I don't think so. It's just the possibilities are now practically infinite. Because they've grown up with this understanding of advertising is what's on the phone in their pockets. And now what we have to do is look at television concepts and say, OK, how can we break that down into little seven second bites for Vine? And preferably, let's do something else altogether with the little seven seconders that makes sense in the context of the fabulously produced television commercial. The rules in advertising really have always boiled down to there are no rules. And the people that we like are the ones that set out to break what are supposed to be the rules. And as I say, what I find in the younger people is there's no fear of the digital space at all. They simply feel naturally and sensibly that that's where they start. And then when I ask them, how does that work in television, they go, I uh, haven't thought about that yet. The two biggest advertising agencies on the planet are Google and Facebook. And they know more about humanity in every aspect of our thoughts and deeds than anyone has ever known in the history of humanity. The easy skim on this is that there's no need for research anymore because these people can analyse data and produce instant connections. So I know Narvi likes this, I know Connor likes that, I know exactly how to do this, get out of my way. In fact, what's happening is that people are discovering the potency of creative work all over again. So there's a paradox here. At the same time as the principal marketing entities have mind-boggling amounts of data available to them, qualitative research, that is putting a highly qualified researcher into a small group of people to probe a topic in depth, depth has never been more valuable. Interestingly, rated by spend in continental United States. The 10 biggest spenders in advertising contain two advertising agencies. The rest of them are the consultancies. Now, what's actually happening is the consultancies are making a grab for what used to be the network business, and they're saying, we can do everything. We can re-engineer your business, we can do your advertising, we can buy your media, we can do your digital stuff. And the more they pile into that, the more they realize that what they're actually looking for is one good creative idea that actually communicates what the company is trying to say. And they are less likely to get that out of a Google or a Facebook or an Arthur or an Anderson than they are out of a small agency anywhere. Are you suggesting, no matter how sophisticated Google and Facebook become and the other big agencies, 
they will never be able to reproduce that atmosphere that exists when people sit around a table with the peat fire burning in the fireplace. I'm saying exactly that, and I'll tell you why. Because in that context, as a very young man or woman, you learn that you have to make your point. You're sitting around a table and there is lunch or dinner or whatever going on. You're surrounded by highly opinionated, in some cases highly educated and competent people, in some cases not, but you have to hold your end up. And if you're going to hold your end up, you're going to have to learn how to tell stories. That, I believe, is still the most powerful weapon in the advertiser's harmony. They forget about it every now and then, and so do the agencies, and so do the new digital people, but at the heart, it is finding a way to tell a story that communicates a particular thing that the advertiser once communicated, but that you now have to tell in a story that everybody wants to listen to. Because it's not just sticking your logo in somebody's face. My, the partner that I mentioned earlier on, with whom I started the agency 30 years ago, used to have a wonderful way of summing all this up. He said, advertising is the uninvited guest at the table. It had better be good company. And as we conclude, you mentioned your mother and father were literary figures, mm. and they succeeded critically, not so much commercially, as storytellers. Mm -hmm. You, as a storyteller, you have succeeded critically, and your stories have reached millions and millions of people. Have you ever thought of yourself as creative source that was able to have that much influence on millions? well-published, if you will. It's nicely put. There's an agency called McCann Erickson who used to describe themselves as truth well told. If you're asking me, do I have a novel in the bottom drawer? No, I don't. That used to be a cliche of my business that um, you did a bit of copywriting until, like Salman Rushdie, you suddenly became world famous as a novelist and you didn't have to worry about money or advertising or anything else ever again. I think... The talent is not necessarily admirable because advertising can be, it can be a really potent weapon in the wrong hands. Let me try and give you a tiny, for instance, of that. When the Conservatives rose to power the last time around in the UK under Margaret Thatcher, it coincided with the rise of a brilliant pair of brothers called the Sachis. And the Satchis produced a poster with a very long line of people and it said Labour isn't working. And that was, that won the Tories the next election and that brought the miners' strike and that brought all of, it ultimately led to Brexit. And I don't believe that that power should be in advertising agencies. So one line. One line. One line undid all of the social progress since the Second World War. And on we were into the mayhem that the modern fiscal conservatives have unleashed. And as we close, and as I thank you for being on the show, even though we've opened the second hour about the modern fiscal conservatives unleashed, I think we can leave that political space empty with things unsaid and people can fill that in as we go or as they go. Do you have anything you would like to say to the Asheville audience as a guest of, of Anne-Marie McConnell here in Western North Carolina as a close? 
Let me reiterate something. You're very lucky people. You live in an elegant, highly cultured town, surrounded by spectacular natural beauty. And neither of those things are what instantly springs into mind of a European if you mention the United States now. And it is very good thing that you have a thriving culture and counterculture and I heard more music walking around the streets of Asheville the other day being performed by buskers who actually knew what they were doing and who were clearly a valued part of that streetscape. That's a valuable thing to have and to keep. Thank you for coming to Asheville. Thank you for visiting with us on Twice Five Miles Radio and it's a pleasure to have you, Connor. Thank you for letting me in. And there you go, my friends, Connor Kennedy. Like I said, Connor departed this world a few years ago, and it was a sad loss for his hometown, Dublin, and a sad loss also for the people who know him. And I'm glad I'm able to offer you this interview once again, and I'm also glad to take you out to the top of the hour with a song by Big John Share titled Higher Ground. People keep on learning Soldiers keep on warring. World keep on turning. Cause it won't be too long. Power keep on lying. Ooh. 
That was Big John Cher singing Higher Ground. And I'd like to thank you for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for your theme song walterparks.com if you would like to know more about walter's music and hey devine dial always glad you manage wpvm fm if you weren't there managing the station we wouldn't be able to do all these great shows that we're able to do broadcasting first on wpvm fm and if you'd like to know more about community radio wpvmfm.org is a good place to look jamesnave.com is my website if you'd like to reach me through that website i would love to hear from you also if you'd like to join me every saturday morning for the imaginative storm writing prompt of the week session which i host with my creative collaborator allegra houston we would love to have you the door is always open We gather at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and we write for an hour on Zoom. Anybody can come. We have people all over the world showing up. So thanks once again for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.